Okay, good evening, everyone. Guys, we are not going to read out of Corinthians tonight, and the reason for that is because it is Pentecost Sunday, which is one of the biggest feasts in the church. So uh, when, it, when it comes to, to Pentecost Sunday, even the Dutch Reformed Church, they've got this big thing that they, they call Pinkster, and, and they do a couple of weeks worth of, of sermons um, um, related to this theme of, of, of Pentecost. So we are just briefly breaking our, our series on Corinthians to look at what happened at Pentecost and to reflect on this massive, significant uh, event. And I want to read to us a very famous passage. It is from the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles here, you can uh, just either switch it on or um, just go there. So we're just going to read from Acts 2, verses 1 to uh, 13. I also think we've got Bibles there, there at the back, so, you, so feel free to, to grab a Bible there. Okay, so Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound a multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, because are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them in our own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Now, what does all of this mean? That is a good question. What on earth is happening, and what does this mean? And that is something that we're going to reflect on uh, this evening. Now, if we want to understand... What Pentecost means, we need to understand what Pentecost meant. So remember that these guys weren't celebrating a festival because the Spirit has already been poured out. They, they were celebrating Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival. So it was, a fe it was a Jewish festival before it was a Christian festival. Are you guys with me? So, so what was that festival? Well, Pinter, those of you guys who... Uh, um, actually, don't know which field of study this is, but the Pentagon. You guys know Pentagon is uh, that um, sort of peace-loving organization with the five with the five sides. So Pentecost is also related to five, but it, it, it means fifty, fifty, and it is a celebration and a feast fifty days after the end of Passover, and it was related to a harvest festival. Now remember, they were an agrarian society. Everybody back then, were, all societies were basically agrarian societies. In other words, everybody was a farmer, everybody knew a farmer, and they, they had a very close connection to the land. 
And remember, this is happening in the Northern Hemisphere. So, so what season are we in now in the Northern Hemisphere? Sort of end of spring, right? So, so the fruit that's just come in this new harvest, the first fruit just started to appear. And they would bring it to the marketplace and they would say, let's sacrifice this fruit. And it is a promise of more to come. You see these apples, you see these oranges. Um, this is... There's, there's more to come, and they, 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 they said, this is the first, and we give it to God, and we thank him for that. But it was also associated with something else that the Jews thought happened 50 days after the Passover, and that is the encounter with the Lord on Mount Sinai. So I'm going to assume that, that, that you guys know something of that story. So uh, Moses leads them out of, out of Egypt, and now they are here in, in the desert, in the Sinai Peninsula, and they are at a mountain. God encounters them in this, uh, in this massive fire. And, and, and because that was such a significant moment, Pentecost and this, this, this feast became celebrated and they remembered the giving of the law and the gathering around Mount Sinai. All right. So what we've got is, well, this at least is the original, the original Pentecost. Are you guys with me? This is what they would have celebrated. Now, if we want to understand how these believers that we just read about in Acts 2, what happened that they could try and make sense of this event that happened in the upper room. And for that, we need to do a very short history of fire, at least of biblical fire. So remember, earlier in the Moses story, you had the burning bush. And there at the burning bush, there were a few things that, that, that were interesting. I mean, there's a lot of things that's interesting there. But the one thing that's interesting is that God tells Moses, this is holy ground. Take off your shoes. Okay. So we've got fire and we've got holy ground. Now, almost always when you've got fire in, 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 in disregard, in, uh, in the Old Testament, it signifies divine space. This is a little area where God dwells. This is holy ground. This is a small portion where heaven and earth overlap. That's what fire signified. So when Moses goes to the burning bush, he says, this is odd, this is strange, and this is holy ground. All right. And then something interesting happens, and that is God tells Moses from the bush, I want you to liberate your people and bring them back so that they can worship me here. Now, that bush is in the original Hebrew, it's called the Sene tree. And when he comes back, at which mountain do they congregate? The Sinai, the Sinai mountain. Okay, so it's the same place. The burning bush and the mountain is the same place. And what happens there when God reveals himself? In what, how does he reveal himself? Fire. Again, it's fire. And the Israelites are very scared and worried. They know that if they come close to God's presence, it will consume them. And then Moses says, look, we... You promised us to go to the holy land, uh, the promised land rather, but we do not want to go away from you because you are burning here and it's kind of nice to be in your presence, to be around you. But if you know anything about the Sinai Peninsula, you can definitely not uh, you know, have a massive country there. It's, 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 it's uninhabitable, really. And uh, 
So they say, we'll go, but then you must come with us. And then you've got this very bizarre, strange, beautiful scene where when they start moving on their way to the promised land, God descends on the tabernacle, which is now this tent where heaven and earth overlaps, which is now this tent where, 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 um, that, that is this divine space. And God comes over that tent in what? Fire. Again, that is now how he is... Um, it, it, it's supposed to signify this divine space. And then eventually, when they build a temple, Solomon builds the temple, and when God takes residence in the temple, again, what do we have? Um, by now you should guess it, fire. All right. So what does fire mean? It means holy space. It means it, it's the place where heaven and earth overlap. It is temple, and it is also where you go to meet God. That's where God is. All right. Are you guys with me? That's a history of fire and the history of God's presence as the story progresses up until uh, the Jesus movement. Now, there's something strange that happened, and that is this temple in Jerusalem became the place, the literal place where heaven and earth overlaps. It is the holy place. That's where God lives. And when Jesus comes, this strange Galilean rabbi constantly opposes himself to this temple. He says strange things like, in three days I will destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it back up. It will, it will be um, rebuilt. And he says, well, no, he says, he, he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. He just chases out all the, uh, the moneylenders and, and, and whatnot from the temple. And then at one point, his disciples are maybe just bored and trying to make conversation with them as they are walking up Temple Mount, and they look at the mountain, and they say, oh, Lord, look at the beautiful stones. And then Jesus is like, oh, you see those stones? Nothing's going to be left of it soon. Nothing. <laughs> and he is just constantly opposing himself to this, to this temple. That's bizarre. That's strange. That is the place where heaven and earth overlaps. That is where the fire is. Why, why this hostility? This is strange. And by the way, that is one of the, the primary reasons why Jesus got into trouble, from the Jewish authorities at least. It had to do with the fact that he was against the temple. And then he dies, and now the disciples are really confused. And then he rises from the dead. Now they are super confused. And we have this, this, this weird time in which he instructs them, and he wants to try and make, he, he tries to make sense of, he tries to show them how to make sense of, of all the mighty works of God and how he had to die and how all of this fits in beautifully in this, in this puzzle. And the guys are still a little bit perplexed, and the scene <laughs> that signifies that is the Ascension. We celebrated the Ascension 10 days ago. Kior um, uh, did a podcast for us that you can listen online. And the Ascension, just very quickly, I mean, this is a free sermon on top of this sermon, is, is just to say the Ascension means it is God's, Jesus' enthronement. So Charles recently ascended the throne because his, his mother eventually died. And, 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 and now he is in charge. He's now on the throne. So ascension means you've taken your throne. And these disciples are very perplexed. And even the art that we have of the ascension is, is very strange because you always see Jesus' feet sticking out underneath the cloud. And these disciples looking up and saying, what is going on? And eventually they're still looking up. And then there's an angel next to them saying, guys, don't look up. You've got work to do. And they, they, they don't know what's going on. And 
They come together, it's Pentecost, and then the next moment, tongues of fire descending, not on the temple, not on Caiaphas, the high priest, not on some fancy scholar, but on these disciples in this upper room. And all of these, these tongues of fire, these flames of fire, rests on all of their heads. And they ask the question, what's up? What's going on? Now, here's the point, friends. We have, we've, we, we, we now know that fire is this place that says this is where God dwells. This is God's home. This is where heaven and earth overlaps. And then, um, I'm sorry if I'm making too, too, too big a jump here and if you struggle to follow me. And then, Jesus, the reason why he is in opposition to the, to the temple is because he says, the temple has been left behind. The temple has fulfilled its function. I am the temple. And what was the function of the temple? It is the place where heaven and earth overlaps. It is where God walks with us. So everywhere Jesus went, guess what happened there as well? That is where God is going. That is that place where heaven and earth overlaps, wherever Jesus went. And that is why the, the, the gospel according to John, um, when, when he starts his, uh, his, his gospel as the guys at the Bali read in, uh, in Amsterdam, he says he was among us and he tabernacled among us. He didn't walk among us, he tabernacled among us. So John discerned, oh my goodness, Jesus was... That fire, he was the burning bush. He was the fire in, in Mount Sinai. He was the fire in the temple. But now, this fire has jumped outside of the, the, the temple, and it was in this person of Jesus walking around. And he died, and he rose again, and we still can't quite make sense of that. But he's now on his throne. He's ascended, and the next moment, he sends the Spirit, and it rests on all these people who have sworn allegiance to him. And the significance of that is, that is now the temple. That is now where heaven and earth overlap. Are you guys with me? That would have been very, very startling. Now there's, uh, the, the, the implications of this is massive. One, it's not geographical, the place where God dwells now. It's not the temple. You can, as a Christian, say, let's go to our holy sites, but they're not really Holy sites. The holy sites is where, where Christians, people who really f try and follow Jesus, that's, that's the holy site. So it's, it, it, your, your geographical um, location, the structure has become redundant. And now what's happened is that this fire has jumped from the safe place in the temple to the rather unsafe place of the world, and it is setting the world on fire. Okay, that's part one. Are you guys with me? Now, do you guys remember when, when you were at school, and think about um, how you last, last year, for example, when you were in high school, it was always strange. I, I experienced something strange, and that was, um, it was nice at school, and it was nice at home. And it was okay when my mom from home picked me up at school at the gate. But I always found something very bizarre when I was in a mall and I found my teacher who's supposed to be in school in the mall and I bump into them at the mall. Do you guys, did you guys ever experience that, that weirdness? Or you are at school and the next moment 
your father or your mother is there, and maybe they've got an appointment with somebody, they're like, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> and you, you don't know this person, this is awkward, because there's sort of this no man's land, which we call the gate, and, and it's appropriate there, and you also have another no man's land, which is called a parent-teacher conference. That's also allowed, although it's also strange. But, but when these two worlds meet, it becomes a little bit awkward. It becomes a little bit embarrassing. Now, something of those two worlds meeting is what happened at Pentecost. It was nice to just have the temple here, to have the religious life here, that is the place where you go and meet God. And we've got festivals that will take care of all of that interaction. But let's just, let's just keep it there. The story of Pentecost is that these two worlds have now collided. And we need to make sense of, of the rest. And it is, it is now strange. It is now difficult to compartmentalize all of, of these things. I, I think we especially in the Afrikaner culture, uh, Christianity has become very, over the years, uh, a culture. And not always a faith, not always somebody that we follow, but something that you grow up with and that you grow up with and that you grow up with. And, and that results in this type of temple type of Christianity, where on a Sunday... You, you will come and you will, you will wear your nice, nice uh, thingies and uh, you, will, you will go to church and your posture will change. But the very next day, things change immediately. I, I mean, if you've ever been to, to a wedding, I remember just being at plenty of these weddings directly after varsity, then the, 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 the master of ceremonies would just be terrible and he would just tell one dirty joke after the next and um, I, I, this I reminds me of that story. <laughs> I just want to uh, invite uh, Domini Fricky to just come up and do the table prayer, please. And then he comes. And then as soon as Domini Fricky is done, he's like, oh, yeah, no, Domini Fricky, when he preached like that, I, it reminds me of this one. And uh, the girl comes and, you know, it's just, it's just a mess. And it, it, they've just neatly divided these two worlds. And this is where this one belongs and this is where this one belongs. The story of Pentecost is these two worlds do not exist. They are all merged into, into one. Are you with me? Now, part three. Why all the nationalities in that passage? Did you guys pick up on it? I mean, geez. He really goes and then through um, this one and this one and this one. And you guys complain that I use too many examples. Well, I mean, blame Luke. He just says, and then they were from there and they were from there and they were from there and they were from there, from North Africa, from, from Europe, from um, the Middle East, from Asia. They were from, from all over the place. Why? Now, there are a couple of reasons. Let me just give you a few I, I, that, that I think is, uh, are compelling. The one is... Just before the Spirit was, was poured out, there's this wonderful verse in, in Acts 1 verse 8, which says, and when the Spirit comes over you, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and uh, Galilee, and the ends of the earth. And in other words, this, the, the fact that these two worlds have now merged, that heaven and earth overlaps wherever there are people who swear their allegiance to, to Jesus, um, this message needs to get out, and it needs to get out, speaking of getting out, it needs, to, uh, it needs to get out very, very quickly. Now remember, you have these, you have these Galileans, and, 
And these Galileans are, I mean, they've, they've got a very small world. They've never been further than 60 kilometer uh, away from their, from, from their place of birth. Um, we know that the disciples had a very small world because they referred to the Sea of Galilee as a sea, when it's obviously a dam, and you can cycle around it in half a day. It's, it's really not a sea, but in their small world, this is a sea, it's an ocean. Um, and, uh, uh, and, 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 and they're going to need help. So what happens is they've got all these different Jews in these different parts of the world, and the Spirit comes and they can hear everything that these Galileans are saying and they are empowered to go out and spread this global message, this international message. But there are a few other things that's also interesting. Can you maybe tell me in which language was the first ever Spirit-filled sermon preached? Everything. I mean, I don't think Afrikaans existed back then, but you, you definitely had Arabic, you had Greek, you had Aramaic. It was a whole bunch of languages. And can you tell me which ethnicity sort of uh, features, featured predominantly, mainly, in this first ever sermon? Well, Luke makes it clear that it's not one, it's plenty. It's all over the place. Now, why is that significant? Because it stands in stark contrast to all of your other major religions, really. If you look at Islam, for example, if you want to truly understand Islam, then what do you have to do? You have to learn Arabic and you need to, to read the Quran in Arabic, and only then will you understand the beauty of, of this book. When you pray, you know in which direction you must face when you pray? In the direction of Mecca, because it's still a Middle Eastern religion with this still Middle Eastern language. That's the way in which you relate to it. And everything sort of uh, stems from that culture, and you need to sort of just adapt and swallow, and swallow that. Uh, yesterday I drove past a billboard, it's from the IPCI, the Islamic Propaganda Center International, these, these um, sort of Muslim evangelist group, and the, uh, it advertised, see the Cat Stevens story. And I, I took the bait, and I, oh yeah, yeah, Cat Stevens, he became a Muslim, what's the story there? And just the one thing that I, that I noticed is, his name is not Cat Stevens anymore, his name is now Yusuf Islam. That's interesting. Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali. So in other words, if you convert, you have to get that, what we call Muslim or Arabic culture. You just have to swallow that, and that's, that's how it works. But in Christianity, it is this truly international movement. There's no such thing as a holy language. There's no such thing as really a holy country or a holy site or whatever. This thing must go out of the temple, this fire, and it just jumped out of the temple, and it's resting on all of these people in different languages, different, different ethnicities, different races, and they are spreading this message, and it is spreading like wildfire. That is very significant, friends. And by the way, that is partly why at Dialogue we, we try to... Hmm, live in light of that reality, to say that, goodness me, my Afrikaansness and my race and uh, my tribe or, or my, whatever it might be, is just second fiddle 
by a country mile to my allegiance with Jesus. And that gives us that flexibility. It gives us that room to, to move because this is now our primary identity. Are you guys with me on that? All right. The other thing, and, and I, I guess it's, it's, it's part of this, is that we are connected. We are connected to people in different parts of the world who do not think like we do, who do not look like we do, who do not speak like we do, but through Pentecost, somehow, we are connected to them. That's also the story of Pentecost. But friends, up until now, you might feel cozy and fuzzy and nice about Pentecost. But here's the problem. It's not. Pentecost is not a cozy, fuzzy thing. When, when Pentecost happened, then I, I think the way in which we relate to Pentecost today is, ah, oh, when the Spirit comes over you, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's a very private event. And it's a very private thing. Yay. And... Uh, and, and I really feel uplifted by this whole experience. But you're not going to bother anybody if you just have a little private, spirit-filled experience, right? Why is it then that as soon as these disciples became spirit-filled, they became in direct opposition to the known world back then, to the, with the Roman authorities and with the Jewish authorities, almost immediately? Why is it? You see, this spirit is not cute and fuzzy. The spirit is very dangerous. And Jesus told his, his, his disciples this in John 16. We see, for example, uh, John 16, uh, 6 to 8. We read, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. That he, he told them that he's going away. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away, uh, if I do not go away, the helper, which is the spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Hmm. That doesn't sound that nice, does it? In a certain sense. You see, when the spirit comes... In a world that is off kilter, in a world that is just uh, more than slightly messed up, when the Spirit comes, it will always stand in contrast to the truth. And that means that if you do not have any, if, you, if, if your life does not bring out any type of hostility, then you are doing it wrong. If, if your spirit-filled life is not bringing division, then we are doing something wrong. So Jesus, this is Jesus again, talking about, talking about the spirit. And he says, I came to cast fire on earth, and would that it were already kindled. I just wish it already happened, he says. This is Luke 12. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I came to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against 
mother-in-law. Some of you think, oh, no, 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 then I've got a very spirit-filled life. We've got that down. But, but here's the point. If, if, we, if, if, if this spirit is the spirit of truth and we live in that reality and we start to speak that reality, what do you think will happen? Opposition. You will have opposition. The spirit of God rested on a couple of people throughout the history of the Old Testament. And one of them is a group that we call prophets. And one thing that I've noticed about prophets is that their lives sucked. They, you've got Jeremiah, and he doesn't tell everybody what they want to hear, which is, ah, we're going to conquer Babylon. Don't worry about it, guys. We've got this. He says, surrender. And, um, and he doesn't even say, then negotiate. Maybe they will make a plan. No, no, no. Surrender, and they're going to take us away to Babylon. There's going to be nothing left of Jerusalem, but we must surrender. And then eventually the guy says, the, the, the king, okay, well, just get rid of this guy. So they take him <laughs> into this pit, and it's very graphic how they depict it. And he was lowered down into this pit, and there was no water into this pit, but there was mud, and he sank into the mud. <laughs> okay. Jeremiah is at the lowest point in the world at that very moment. Why? Because he spoke truth. Because he lived a spirit-filled life. That's why, friends, there's nothing cute about the Spirit. Many of us will have these pious prayers where we say, Ah, oh, Spirit, come into my life. Oh, be careful what you wish for. No, I'm serious. Be careful what you, what you wish for. Because, because when the Spirit comes, it will convict this world. It is a dividing line as well. And I want, us to, I want us to reflect on these aspects of Pentecost. And uh, in a bit, we're going to listen to the chants of a community called Teze. Have, you, have anyone ever heard of Teze? So it's this monastic community in France. It was started by a Protestant, but... He, he, he's connected with the Orthodox and the Catholics. So it is this very ecumenical monastery. That if I was a young person now, by the way, I would really make a plan to go there. And you sort of just enter the monastic life. And they've got, I think, like 100,000 people, maybe I'm exaggerating, going through their doors uh, annually, most of them not believers. And they get to live this monastic life and they sing. But, but one thing that is, is quite beautiful is they've got this song called Vini Sancte Spiritus, which means come, spirit, come. And this monastery was developed after the Second World War, and it was supposed to create a unity, a unity among people. And that is what the spirit does. When the spirit comes, there is a unity. And in as much as we are constantly in this unity, We've got questions that we need to ask ourselves about our spirit-filled life, okay? But there's this other thing. When the spirit comes, it brings a unity, and we see that unity in what? The many United Nations in the upper room. Everybody from North Africa, they all come together, and they hear each other's languages, and there's this beautiful unity between all these ethnicities and races and languages, yes. But when the spirit comes, it also brings division, now, here's my question to us. In what way have we 
missed out on, on that unifying aspect, that unifying power of the Holy Spirit? In which way are we missing that? And then in which way are we just playing it safe? We do not want to offend. We are people pleasers or culture pleasers. And sometimes we know that something is right and we are afraid to say it or we're afraid to act in a particular way. In which way do we grieve the Holy Spirit, so to speak, when we do not live and speak out and live out this truth? Those are questions that only we can answer for ourselves. So when we listen to this song, I want you to reflect on those two questions, but I also want you to, to pray the following, and that is, ask God to send His Spirit and to send His fire into your life. And when that fire comes, it will purify. Because there's a lot of self-absorption, a lot of selfishness, a lot of greed, a lot of anxiety, a lot of lust, a lot of, a lot of things in our lives. And when that fire comes, it cleanses. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we pray that you will send your spirit into our hearts, that you will set us on fire. And we know that that prayer is a risky prayer, but nevertheless, Lord, we ask that. We pray, Lord, that you will bring a unity among us, that there will be that wonderful unifying unifying conviction that just comes with your spirit. But Lord, when this spirit of truth comes, that, that we will be able to live in light of that and that we will shine that light. And when the darkness sees that light, Lord, it's, it's, it's going to reject it. So we pray, Lord, that we will be brave enough to live those types of lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful story, this wonderful arc of how you came to live among us and eventually within us. And when all had gone wrong <clears throat> in the garden and mankind has just made every possible decision that can undermine its relationship with you and yet Lord you started all over again and you met with Moses and you met with the Israelites and you traveled with them and through this temple Lord eventually the temple the true temple came and tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus Christ and and Lord when he gave his spirit it means that we now have access to that and we pray Lord that that spirit, and in as much as we've quenched that fire, in as much as we've uh, tried our best to, uh, to, to to undermine that fire, that we will throw oil on it again. That it would be a a blaze within us. Come, Holy Spirit, come. It is in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray that. Amen.